sight being there at the airport to see them back and see them uh, tired and dragging and but still happy to see everybody so it was uh, it was a blessing to pray for you guys while you were gone we thought of you a lot and we prayed for you a lot also uh, generally I hesitate to do something like this uh, because generally when you remember people's birthdays and anniversaries and things like that, you're going to leave somebody out. You can't always do that, okay? But this is a significant milestone, and I want to offer my congratulations and our congratulations as a body to Andy and Dorothy Obrachta, who are celebrating their 40th anniversary today. Forty is pretty significant for anybody, but I think especially considering the events of their last several years of their life, the fact that they can be together here on their 40th anniversary is a very important thing. So we, we congratulate you guys. We celebrate with you. Have you ever thought about this question, what's in a name? What do names mean? And obviously, not everything about a person, organization, group is in a name. Uh, the name Kirk, for example. Kirk means church. It could also mean owned by the church. Well, that might describe me, but it certainly doesn't describe Kirk, our Kirk at least. Often we expect names to tell us something about what we're looking for, what to expect from something, what we're looking for, what we want, what we need. For example, if we're looking for toys for our children, Toys R Us, there's a good descriptive name. That's probably a good place to start if you're looking for toys. If we're looking for a steak dinner, Lone Star Steakhouse. That might be a place to go. If you want pancakes for breakfast, the International House of Pancakes, that says it all, doesn't it? Might be an option. If it's burgers, we have all kinds of options. You have Burger King, you've got Backyard Burger, Burger Street, there's some choices. You get the idea. Sometimes names are descriptive, but sometimes things are a bit more obscure. Uh, the name Microsoft might tell us that this company makes software, but the names Google and Linux don't mean very much unless you're familiar with these things. To the uninitiated, they don't mean very much at all. While American Airlines is obviously an airline, TED might be almost any kind of company, or a nickname for a guy named Theodore, even. Las Americas might seem to be obviously Mexican, but Quiznos could be anything from Italian food to what it is, a sandwich shop. Or it could be almost anything else. Now, if you're looking for some sort of spiritual experience, you might look for what we call churches. Of course, they can be all over the map, too, as far as the descriptive quality of their names. Church names don't always tell you very much. Of course, if they have the name of the denomination in them, that tells you at least a little bit. Emmanuel Baptist Church just down the street, they're surprised a Baptist church. But you know what? Even that doesn't tell you everything you might want to know or need to know when you're looking for a church. Is it Southern Baptist? Is it American Baptist? Is it regular Baptist? Is it independent Baptist? Is it free will Baptist? Each of these Baptist denominations has its own distinctives. These churches can be very, very different in style and in theology. You need more to go on than just something Baptist Church to tell you much about what that church believes or teaches. Of course, it's not essential to have a name that tells what you believe or everything about you, whether you're a church, a restaurant, whether you're a store or some other entity. 
But I began to think of this idea of names and what they might reveal when Jim Garrett was presenting his paper at this year's conclave just last month. It was a rewrite of his paper from many years ago. There he is. You just feel like you're there, don't you? As people gather around and listen to Jim. This was a rewrite of his paper from many years ago, What is a New Testament Church? In this paper, he outlined several distinctives of a New Testament church, and he highlighted these from Acts 2.42, which says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. One of Jim's subsections, the second characteristic he mentioned about New Testament churches, is that New Testament churches are an organism not an organization. As he read this section, I thought about TCF, and I thought about how true this is, and how that for so many years, as TCF has evolved and changed as a church body, that's now more true of us today than it's ever been. We've become, at TCF, we've become an organism. Now, that doesn't mean TCF was worthless before This was as true of us as it is now. On the contrary, TCF has almost always had at least some characteristics of an organism more than an organization. But this is really more true today in our church life than it's ever been before. I also thought more of this idea. I'd already begin to think about it just a little bit after hearing Jim's paper. I thought more of it when we had our fifth Sunday service just a few weeks ago where we featured house churches here at TCF. You remember that service? We heard from four different members of four different house churches that are currently meeting, and they had different things to say, but there were some common threads in the things that they said, weren't there? There was this common thread of the sense of family, of connectedness, of relationship, of love and support that people get from house churches. It was a consistent theme of all four who shared that particular morning a few weeks ago. I also thought of it last night when many of us were at the airport to welcome home the Kenya team. And, you know, there were uh, many, of course, were family members who had uh, blood family members, but that was my family coming home too. And I wanted to be there. And there were many others who were in the same position as me. They didn't have anybody else that were uh, on the trip but they went to greet them and to welcome them home because you guys are part of us. You're part of us, and we missed you, and we prayed for you, and we feel that sense of relationship and connection. It's interesting that uh, this is the first missions trip we've had from this church where we sent a fairly large group in quite a while that one of my children hasn't been on, one of my girls. But you know what? I didn't feel any less connected to or invested in this trip than if my own girls had been on the trip. I felt every bit... And that that, that speaks of what we are as a church, doesn't it? You may or may not realize this, but come this November, TCF celebrates its 40th anniversary as a church. Do you suppose that way back in 1969, when several people, including Nettie Hudson, most of us know Nettie, were sitting around deciding what to call their new church, the Holy Spirit was at work in something so seemingly insignificant and unimportant as what do we call this new church? Did anyone realize then that TCF would become a New Testament church and that now, 40 years later, our name would really reflect 
what we've become as a church body. Now, of course, our name doesn't reflect everything about us. You can buy chicken sandwiches or salads at Backyard Burger. But the fact that we are Tulsa Christian Fellowship is significant, to say the least. I, for one, do not believe that it was an accident that TCF was TCF, that they called it, they decided back 40 years ago to call us Tulsa Christian Fellowship. My understanding of the initial naming process for this was there was a group sitting around and the original group suggested names. Most of them included some sort of Baptist title because this was a group of Baptists that was forming a new church. In fact, I spoke with Nettie about this the other day when I visited her, I think it was Friday, and uh, I, I told her about what I was going to be talking about this Sunday, and she remembered that one of the names that came up was St. John's Baptist. Can you believe that? We were almost called St. John's Baptist. She also remembered, she also remembered that Willard suggested Koinonia. Willard suggested Koinonia. That, that, that didn't stick, but it did, and we'll see that here in a second. Now, 40 years after that initial season in the life of this body, we're a church, of course, and we do many of the things that most churches do, some well and some perhaps not as well as we'd like to do them. But our name reflects something very important about what we really are, what we've grown into, and what we've become along the way. We are truly a fellowship in the biblical sense of that word, and in a very real way. So this morning, we're going to spend a few minutes looking at what's in our name, the last part of this name specifically, and how it reflects what we are as a church and what we still want to more and more truly become. Now, fellowship, when we think of it in a church context, has usually come to mean potlucks, visiting before and during sometimes and after the service, maybe church picnics, things like that. Now, it's, it's certainly not wrong to use the word in this way, but these things are only a part of the full biblical meaning of fellowship. Fellowship translated in the New Testament is the Greek word koinonia. And it means so much more than that in the understanding of the New Testament church. Koinonia is the word used in Acts 2.42, which we read a moment ago, for fellowship. Now, our English understanding of the word, it begins to describe what we have at TCF, but not in its entirety. I found five contemporary secular meanings of fellowship. I'm sure there's some more. One of them is a company of people that shares the same interest or aim. Yeah, that kind of describes us. Another one is a feeling of friendship, relatedness, or connection between people. Yeah, we can go with that. A merit-based scholarship. Eh, not so much. A temporary position at an academic institution with limited teaching duties and ample time for research. Nah, definitely not. A stipend that supports the pursuit of an advanced degree or research. Now, you, at first you think no, but in a minute we're going to see that there's, this does have a little bit of a connection with our understanding of koinonia and fellowship. Koinonia, like many Greek words, is a very rich word. It's full of nuance. It's full of meaning. In the Greek, it includes not only our more common understandings, like the things that we just looked at of the word fellowship, but it also includes the idea of participation. It includes the idea of communion, community, and to share in a common interest 
or purpose. It's also used to describe a financial participation or sharing of resources, that is, giving. And we'll see that here in a minute. The word implies common to all. It means partnership and cooperation, and that clearly implies partnership, not just partnership for the sake of being together, but partnership in doing something. All told, here's one definition of fellowship, the bond of common purpose and devotion that binds Christians to Christ and together with one another. Now, it's this understanding of fellowship that I think sheds light on our purpose for gathering here together at TCF. Our sense of purpose as a church, our deep and growing sense of the bond of family and relationship at TCF. We might say that TCF is TCK, Tulsa Christian Koinonia. Isn't it? I think that's a good way to think of us. The Greek stem koin means common, and from this idea we can see many different shades of meaning. The Newton uses the koin stem to speak of the believer's relationship with Christ and the mutual fellowship among Christians. Koinonia was Paul's favorite word to describe a believer's relationship with the risen Lord and the benefits of salvation which come through him. On the basis of faith, believers have fellowship with the Son. We share fellowship in the gospel. Paul probably meant that all believers participate together in the saving power and message of the good news. Believers also share together a fellowship with the Holy Spirit, which the apostle understood as a most important bond for unity in the life of the church. There's so much more to koinonia. We often refer, for example, to the Lord's Supper as communion. You've heard us refer to the Lord's Supper. Okay, we're going to have communion today. This terminology comes from the Apostle Paul's using this very same word, koinonia, as he describes the Lord's Supper. And that's the King James translation of the Greek word koinonia. In 1 Corinthians 10, 16, that's where we see it. Paul described the cup as communion. Now, in other translations, in 1 Corinthians 10, 16, we see participation, we see sharing, but it's the communion of the blood of Christ. Then he describes the bread as communion of the body of Christ. And there it is, again, the same word, koinonia, which is often translated fellowship. In the next verse, 1 Corinthians 10, 17, right after explaining that we have fellowship, we have participation in some mystical way with Jesus through the Lord's Supper. Paul writes, Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of one loaf. This illustrates very clearly Paul's understanding that fellowship with Christ was to lead to, it was to result in fellowship between believers. So koinonia with our Lord Jesus results in sharing of the benefits of his sacrifice together. That includes the good news of the gospel. That includes the Holy Spirit. It's also clear that koinonia includes sharing in his sufferings. You feel a ball drop there? That's not one of the most exciting parts of koinonia. At least many churches ignore that. They prefer to focus on kind of the more accessible and friendly parts, the things I've been talking about and will. 
But we see that pretty clearly in Philippians 3.10, where Paul writes, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. There's that word again. It's koinonia. This time applied to Jesus' sufferings, the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. That's why Paul could also write this admonition about what we are to become as followers of Christ in Philippians chapter 2, beginning with verse 5. Your attitude should be the same, he writes, as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. For us, these characteristics are born of our fellowship with Jesus. Humility, obedience, sacrifice, servanthood. So just as Jesus lived a sacrificial life, giving himself so completely for the people with whom he had fellowship, we, his people, are also to give of ourself for the sake of God's people. Those who, like us, have fellowship with him through the blood of Jesus. 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning with verse 12, says this, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ. That, that's koinonia right there. It says, rejoice that you have koinonia in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. Because we have fellowship with Jesus, we have fellowship with one another. That is the basis, that is the foundation for our fellowship. It's at the root of all we are and all we do as followers of Jesus. And again, understanding what true fellowship, what true koinonia means, we are meant to share life in many ways with our brothers and sisters in Christ. This sometimes includes sharing our resources. Paul actually used the word koinonia to describe the financial contributions that he collected for the Gentile believers to take to Jerusalem for their needy brothers and sisters in Christ who live there. We see this mentioned in Romans 15, beginning with verse 26, where Paul writes, For Macedonia and Achaia were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in the Jews' spiritual blessings, they owe it to the Jews to share with them their material blessings. The word contribution here in verse 26 is koinonia. Paul says twice that they were pleased to do it. They were pleased to make a, to share a koinonia. Why? 
because both the Jews and Gentiles share in the spiritual blessings, so they owe it to the Jews to share with them their material blessings. That's what, that was Paul's argument here. We also see this reference in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Maybe a little bit more familiar passage referencing this. Beginning with verse 1, it says, Now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. And they did not do as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. That reflects koinonia too, because our koinonia is first with the Lord and then it's with each other. So we urged Titus, since he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in your love for us, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. What a great phrase, this grace of giving. We don't think of giving that way very much, do we? We don't think of it as being something of the grace of God. In verse 4 of 2 Corinthians 8, we see Paul telling us that the Macedonian churches urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of koinonia. Urgently pleaded. Here it's translated, sharing in this service to the saints. When's the last time any of us could be described as urgently pleading for the opportunity to be involved in helping someone? I'm sure some of us have. Maybe we haven't gone to them and said that, but that was in our heart. That was our heart's attitude. Participating in kingdom service. What a true model we see here of koinonia. What a true example for us to emulate. When we share our blessings with one another, when we're generous with one another, that's a true expression of koinonia. When we do that here at TCF, that's just one way we're living up to our name, isn't it? Tulsa Christian Fellowship. A few verses later, at the end of 2 Corinthians chapter 8, beginning with verse 13, we read this result of koinonia. Paul writes, Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so that in turn their plenty will supply what you need. Then there will be equality, as it is written, he who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little did not have too little. What a beautiful picture of the body of Christ, the church at work. I wonder, as I was reading these verses, these last couple of verses I read from 2 Corinthians chapter 8, if these might be a little bit more meaningful to us as a fellowship and to us as individuals in this fellowship in the days to come, as more and more of our numbers struggle with the impact of our challenging economy. I really wonder if we're going to see that. Some of us are going to have more than others, and we're going to have the privilege and opportunity of sharing that koinonia together. True fellowship with each other. True fellowship with each other depends, as we noted, entirely on our union with Jesus. In fact... It's not possible without it. 
You might say, well, you know, the world, they have good relationships. And yes, the world apart from Jesus, they can have friendships. They can have relationships, people without Christ. They can do wonderful things for one another. I recognize that. I see that. But you cannot have koinonia. You can't have true biblical fellowship without a mutual union in Christ. We see that beginning in 1 John chapter 1, verse 3. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And then in verses 6 and 7, if we claim to have fellowship with him yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. Here in 1 John, we see this relationship between our fellowship with Jesus and our fellowship with one another clearly connected. They're so clearly connected you can't yank them apart. Paul uses the word koinonia 14 times in his epistles. And one thing he makes clear in his letters is that everything in the life of those who follow Christ is an expression of our real, but mystical sometimes, but our real participation, our sharing in the life of Christ himself. Everything. This union is what overflows into our relationships with others who follow Jesus. As we recognize Jesus, as you and I recognize Jesus in each other, in others of his followers, we extend to them what in uh, Galatians, the book of Galatians, is called the right hand of fellowship. And that's the word too, koinonia. Fellowship is the byproduct or the end result of our common union in Christ, which results from our common goals, our sharing of life together, our sharing of resources, both physical and spiritual and even emotional. The more that we as Christians understand and discover the salvation that's common to all of us, that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that all of us are saved not on the basis of deeds we've done, but according to his mercy, that all of us are saved by his grace through faith, and that not of ourselves, but being a gift of God. The more we ponder these things, the more we realize these things and accept these things about us, the more we realize that you're in the same boat that I'm in. Or maybe we should say, you're in the same ship that I'm in. The more fellowship occurs, the deeper it becomes. It means we become more like fellows in the same ship, headed to the same place by the same grace of God. That connects us. You see how that connects us? We realize we're all in the same place. We all start out in the same place. Another thing that's important to note is that an understanding of action is almost always included in any reference we see to koinonia. Fellowship isn't just being together, though, of course, that's part of it by necessity. Fellowship is most often doing something together. Of course, it's not just doing any old thing together. It's doing God's will together. Since our koinonia with each other is only as healthy or worthwhile as our koinonia with Jesus, this makes perfect sense when you think about it. We're on a common mission with a common purpose, 
and that purpose is God's purpose. Though we may have different roles, and we do, we have different roles in fulfilling that purpose, the end goals are the same. Here's one man's definition of koinonia, or fellowship, which I liked. Fellowship is a relationship of inner unity among believers that expresses itself in outer co-participation with Christ and one another in accomplishing God's will on earth. I could probably give about 15 definitions of koinonia, and it would just begin to grasp all the nuances of the word. But I like this one too. Though, so though we often think of church potlucks, what we do in our morning time here together, greeting one another each Sunday, or things like that, of fellowship, and again, those things are part of what fellowship is, it's more appropriate to define fellowship as what we do together. When the Kenya team joined together with each other and joined with us who stayed in Tulsa, who stayed with the stuff, when they participated by our giving, by our prayers, by our encouragement, we were all involved in that too, whether we went or not. And then the team took their individual giftings to another land, and then they joined with fellow Christians there in Kenya to fulfill God's purpose. That's a reflection. That's a part of Koinonia. When all those who are going to be working on the upcoming VBS and those who are just praying for this event touch the lives of about 100 kids in just a few weeks here in our church, that's a part of what Koinonia is. When Spencer and Carl and Dave and others minister on Monday nights at the Medvan, that's a true part of what Koinonia is. When our volunteers go each week to Kendall Whittier to do the Good News Club, that's Koinonia too participating, sharing the load together as part of God's team to fulfill the common purpose of seeing people come into the kingdom of God. These things are a reflection of koinonia. Koinonia fellowship is not supposed to be a luxury that some Christians have and other Christians don't. Now, I realize there are exceptions to every rule, one of the first things I think of is some of our missionaries. They have a challenge finding true koinonia on some of the mission fields that they serve in for a variety of reasons. <clears throat> but these are exceptions. Some people say, well, this church or that church, they have good fellowship there. And maybe this church doesn't. In those cases, what they're usually thinking of are the things we've already referred to. Their gatherings, their potlucks, etc., etc., that they enjoy being with one another and having a good time together. And again, that's just part of it. It's so much more than that. We should not think of our fellowship with other Christians as a spiritual luxury, an optional addition to the exercises of private devotion. We should recognize, rather, that such fellowship is a spiritual necessity. For God has made us in such a way that our fellowship with himself is fed by our fellowship with fellow Christians and requires to be so fed constantly for its own deepening and enrichment. Isn't that true? Don't you see that? It seems clear to me that in our koinonia with Christ, which leads to and makes possible our koinonia with each other, we are meant to work together for the glory of God. So I think it's fair to say that koinonia is a pretty significant tool which God uses to accomplish his purposes 
in the world. For many churches, that working together might end up looking more like an organization than an organism. We referenced that earlier. There's a difference between these two things, and Jim pointed that out in his paper that I referenced a little bit earlier. Let me read to you a few things from that. In an organization, separate entities are brought together into some order so that certain things can be accomplished. These separate entities often have no relationship beyond the organization or activity that brings them together. An organism, on the other hand, is a living being composed of interdependent organs. They are bound together and depend on one another for continued life. We continue. Church life in the New Testament is called koinonia, which is usually translated as fellowship. Koinonia is an assumption in the New Testament church. Koinonia may be illustrated by the relationship between the heart and the lungs. The lungs cannot live without blood pumped from the heart. The heart, on the other hand, cannot live unless the lungs oxygenate the blood. Neither the heart nor the lungs can live without the other. This giving and receiving of life is koinonia. This is New Testament church life. 1 John 1.7 assures us, if we walk in the light as he himself is in the life, we have fellowship. We have koinonia with one another. Jim also points out that the passages in Romans 12, 1 Corinthians, 13, or 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12, we're not going to read those now, but you might reference those at some point. These reveal the church as being a body of interdependent organs as well, much as the heart is dependent on the oxygen from the lungs, etc. These are other biblical examples of the life that we are to live together as the body of Christ. Paul concludes his description in Romans with this exhortation. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. What happens to you is what happens to me is the attitude among New Testament Christians. This is the stuff of which New Testament church life is made. It is a shared life. It is a shared life. I, for one, am very thankful to be part of a true fellowship. A fellowship, a place in which so many ways we see we truly share life together. And let me say this, don't miss out on this opportunity. If you sit on the periphery, I don't mean physically, I mean emotionally and spiritually, if you're sitting on the periphery of this fellowship, I encourage you to become fully invested. Because if you're not, you're missing out on some of this koinonia that we're talking about this morning. The truth is we can't create koinonia. Only God can do that. However, we can cooperate with the means he's given us to participate in, to experience true koinonia. I'm sure in many churches, they reflect in some way the good intentions of their church name. But I'm thankful that God saw fit to choose such a significant New Testament concept as fellowship, koinonia, to describe this church, TCF, Tulsa Christian Fellowship. I'm thankful that in many ways we truly are a fellowship and all that that means with much of what the Word of God includes in that understanding. I am grateful to call you my brothers and sisters in Christ, to share 
true koinonia with you. Through the thick, through the thin of life together, of ministry together. You know, I, I can't help but think of marriage vows, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in good times and not so good times. You know, it's like that. It's supposed to be like that. I'm thankful that we can share these things together. I'm also thankful that we're aware that only God can do what's been done here at TCF. It's His grace that has brought us to this place. I'm praying that God will continue to form and shape us as a fellowship, us as individuals, but also as a fellowship, into His image. And I pray that in doing that, in the months and years to come, TCF will reflect even more fully than it does today the reality of our name, the reality of true koinonia. Are you with me on that? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege of sharing life together here at Tulsa Christian Koinonia. We thank you, Father God, that you've given us this. But we pray, Heavenly Father, that we don't ever take it for granted. Lord, we pray that we would more and more truly reflect all that true biblical koinonia means in our life together. That we would share life, that we would share resources when we need to, that we would share our spiritual lives, we would share every part of our lives together. And Lord, that it wouldn't just be the shared life, but it would be the participation in doing something. Lord, that we would be faithful to share together in doing those things you have called us as a church to do. And in that way, we would truly represent koinonia, participation in fulfilling God's purposes in our little corner of this planet. And Lord, in the places where you've decided to send us other little corners of the planet, we thank you, Father God, for this privilege of sharing. And Lord, we are grateful, even as Paul wrote, we are grateful for this privilege of sharing in these ministries, in this life together. Help us to never take it for granted and help us to grow in it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.